Hello, welcome back to She Invest Podcast with your hosts. I am Allie Fugit. And I'm your host, Carrie Douglas. And we are She Invest. Uh, so today on this episode, uh, we are going live again. If you were tuned in for the first episode a little earlier, it's our second episode today. Uh, this one, we just thought that we were going to bring some questions that people reached out to us about and also do a live Q&A. So if you have any questions, please feel free to throw them in the chat and uh, we'll answer them for you. Uh, anything you want to know about investing, but we do have a couple of questions uh, that were sent to us ahead of time that we're going to start with. So um, i tell you what, Karen, I'll read off Karen's question. Yes. Uh, she posted it in our Facebook group. So shout out to Karen. Uh, hello, we love you. And here is our answer. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to someone who is interested in hotels and wants info for investing in the future, such as six to 12 months? Awesome. And so I think um, I have a couple pieces of advice, but Allie, you go first with yours. Yeah. Uh, so my big advice is if you are looking to invest that soon, the first thing that you need to do is decide what your buy box is going to be. And so for that, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things to consider, especially when it comes to any property, but specifically commercial. Uh, so what market are you going to be in? Um, are you looking for something that's more turnkey? Are you looking for something that has value add? Uh, and and where, where do you stand on that? Um, also, uh, what is your purchase price you're looking for? Uh, do you have investors you're going to be working with or some in mind? Um, I think a lot of that kind of goes into that play of the buy box and knowing what you're going to work with. Um, yeah. Cause I, I do think one of the important things is like possibly having some conversation with people that could be interested in investing with you prior to doing a deal. Uh, I think that if I had one lesson to learn, I think that that might've been something we would have taken from our investing journey. Yeah. So far too. And so I think, um, like just, just I, the term I heard lately was no investor left behind. So like, if we're using jargon, you know, like let's define it. Right. So your buy box is just your criteria. And, you know, so in addition to figuring out the location you want, like the number of units you want this hotel to have, um, you know, like Ali said, are you looking for something that, that is going to be a value add, meaning you're taking it from its current state, rebranding it, remodeling it, um, refurnishing it, that's value add. Like you're adding immense value to the property by turning it around from what it is currently versus maybe you take something that's considered turnkey. It's ready to go. It doesn't need a renovation, but maybe you're going to come in and add value by improving the operations and how it's managed. That can be a value add as well, but it doesn't require capital, right? So if you are thinking about a property that requires a renovation, thinking about how are you going to pay for that before you buy the property? I mean, that was, you alluded to it, but that was something I've dealt with too, is like, okay, now I've got this property. Uh, where am I getting the money for the renovation? Right? So like right now I'm operating mine as it is, but it really needs a renovation and a rebrand. So, you know, I'm still seeking financing for that. And I know you guys, you know, did the same thing where you actually acquired the property first, then went and found the money to do the, the renovation, but it would have been a lot easier if I'd found it first. Um, and that was the goal. I just didn't find it. And so, so that's an important piece to consider. Um, what else, what else were you going to say? Um, I think that you, like, I think you also need to decide based on who you want, who do you want to serve? 
right? Through your avatar, yeah. Yeah, who, who do you want to serve? So I think that has a big, a big thing to do with it because and I, I put question, uh, Karen's question at the scene. So if anybody joins in and is wanting to know what we're talking about, I, I think that knowing what avatar you serve best is a great point to have in your buy box uh, because then that can also kind of decide what market you might want to go into. Uh, do you want a market that's close to your home so you can be really um, in the business to begin with? Or do you want, are you looking at something far away? Um, you know, what all you're comfortable with and, and what all you're willing to, to go with at the beginning. Yeah, and if you currently have a few, you know, short-term rental units and you want to leverage the same team and not start from scratch with a new cleaner and a new handy person and a new runner and all that, you know, then you, then you might want to include in your buy box for the location to be in your same market versus starting in a new market, that kind of thing. So just, just some stuff to think about there. I think the other piece of advice I would have um, is to get your financial documents in order. Mm -hmm. And um, that's actually a segue into Bernie's question, which is like, what does your personal financial statement look like? What were you going to say, Allie? Oh, I was just going to say, I think I'd have one more piece that we oh, need yeah. to talk about for the hotel. And, um, and you were talking about it earlier. And I think it's like knowing your restrictions and stuff, right? Oh, I'm glad you brought me back to that before we segued away from it. Sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. So this is a really great question that I got yesterday, actually. Um, Brittany and I were talking about it. And then I, I need to call and talk with one other person about it, too. So we were talking about zoning and restrictions and whether you're going to go after a hotel license. And um, since that's different than short-term rental law or landlord-tenant law, you need to know what the hotel licensing law is in your state. Um, so for example, um, Allie is actually not going after a hotel license. She's going to leverage short-term rental law in her state because it works better for her. And so you are able to avoid getting a hotel license by increasing your stays to a minimum of two nights per guest, right? So a guest must stay for two nights minimum then it's considered short-term rental and it's not considered a hotel. And that helped you avoid a whole bunch of red tape, right? Yes, it did. It did. So like, so again, just to add a little bit of content to what Carrie's talking about, what we found when we purchased is that for hotel law, and this was during due diligence, this is part of that. And it would also help it again, learning from our experience. I think that we would have researched this beforehand and we will the next time we yeah. will look at, at county and city regulations around these um, these items. But um, the hotel licensing in our area required us to have like regular monthly inspections. Um, we could only use certain items for coffee machines. We, could, we had to have a landline in every room. Um, also, like there were other things around the um, elevator at this hotel that had to be fixed. And I mean, just a bunch of things that were really like, uh, and there's also like things on food and, and what we could offer and what we couldn't. And it was just a lot. And we just didn't want to pursue that avenue. And then when we had the conversation and we talked to them, we were like, Hey, what if we did the short term rental? And we only did, we did two night minimums. 
And they're like, oh, then that excludes you from everything. You don't have to do anything. And we were like, done. Like, right. So, but for Carrie's instant, Carrie, talk to yours and, and speak about your situation. Yeah. So for me, it's the exact opposite. So for me, the short-term rental law in my market is very restrictive. I would have to have a seven night minimum for each guest stay. And I would only be allowed to advertise the property for available for rent for 180 consecutive days per year. And then I would have to take it down for the other 180 days. So that would only allow me to rent my my property out six months out of the year. I, I need it year round to produce the revenue that I'm projecting. So I have to go for the hotel license. That commercial zoning and hotel licensing actually is helpful to, to me um, to avoid some of the short-term rental restriction that takes place in my market. So. I will still have the red tape that Ali mentioned. I don't think I need a landline phone in every room, but I will have to be careful about like ice is considered food. So I can't like the ice cube trays have to be empty in the refrigerators. Um, if I want to use an ice machine at the lobby, I think that's okay. Um, I have, I got flagged because I have a rip in a screen on a window and like I, that room isn't considered usable because the screen is ripped. Right. So like, there's a lot of red tape for me. Um, I have to be very careful about like reusable glasses. I, I can't provide them unless I have a proper way to sanitize and they'd prefer it be a dishwasher. Um, so I'm going to have to do cups that are wrapped in plastic, that kind of stuff, just like some annoying red tape. But for me, it's worth doing um, to get the proper hotel license so that I can rent it um, 365 days per year without a seven night minimum. So yeah. it's really, I think, knowing your state's legislation on both short-term rental and hotel legislation, and then picking which, pick your poison, right? Like <laughs> which yeah. restrictions and, you want to be subject to. And then also looking into the county, because like where we're at, the county plays a particular role in that too. And they have their own regulations that coincide with the the state regulations. So, yeah, so it, um, it's probably an added layer on, on top of whatever right. the state has. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would love to know, I would love to know for you, Carrie, because like we don't we don't have restrictions like you're saying, like where you can only rent a, so many days out of the year, mm -hmm. um, like for the vacation terms. So I would love to know, like when you did you know beforehand when you're running the deal about this? And if so, like, did you run the numbers both ways to make a decision on what way you wanted to go and what way it would produce? Or So I knew what the short term rental restrictions were in my state ahead of time. Um, because as a realtor, this went all the way to our state Supreme Court in 2018. Um, basically, property owners were feeling frustrated that municipalities were trying to restrict short-term rentals. And so it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And um, they, they basically, the state said, municipalities can restrict up to the following. And you can't be more restrictive than that. You can't ban it completely, right? So my market chose the maximum restriction, which is a seven night minimum and renting 180 days out of the year consecutively. The other 180 days, you're not on the market or not available for rent. Um, and so I knew all of that ahead of time. And that is actually why I purchased a property with commercial zoning that could get a hotel license because I knew that in my market, I wasn't going to cash flow well if I could only rent half the year. Um, and so I never bothered to run a pro forma that way. I, I could just tell right off the bat 
analyzing the market that I needed all 12 months for this to work. And that's why, why I was looking for a commercially zoned property. And that's why when this hotel popped on the market, I was like, Ooh, that's for me because I had been looking at other commercial um, properties in this market that could get a similar hotel type license. For instance, I looked at like a coffee shop with an apartment above it or something like that um, where I, where I could still have a unit that was commercially zoned and not be subject to those rules. So that was, it's a completely different approach than what Allie's taking. And so that was my piece of advice to two people who've asked me recently, like, hey, when you're doing due diligence before you buy the property, what types of things should I be looking at? I think a lot of us think about, oh, do an inspection, figure out if you're going to do a renovation, how much is that going to cost you? Like, those are those are pretty like normal things. Um, there were two things that I didn't do during the due diligence, due diligence period that I wish I had. Um, one of them was get my hotel pre-licensing inspection. So I knew that I was going after the hotel license for the reasons we just discussed, but I knew that the property needed so much work. I didn't want the health department to come out and see how bad it was. So I was like, let's have them come later um, so that we don't get like flagged or like, I was afraid that if they came out and saw how rough some of the rooms were, it wouldn't just be, oh, we're flagging you for a ripped screen. It would be like, you know, that they were going to condemn my building or something, you know, and, and it turns out in hindsight, they wouldn't have, and it would have probably been a better negotiation tool for me to go back to the seller and maybe get a better deal on price. Now I already got what I feel was a good price. So I'm not having like remorse about it. But if I tried to do the pre-licensing inspection and gone back to the seller and said, hey, you know what? They won't even let me rent any of these rooms because all the screens are ripped. Like maybe I could have gotten a better price. Yeah. So, but, I think, um, but I think that the good conversation around that is to remember that if you have one of those inspections, it is not a reflection of you because you're not running it. Right. right. And I was afraid it would be. And so I, right. that was definitely a learning experience that I wish I had done that differently. So I, next yeah. time I will do the pre-licensing inspection during the um the due diligence period before purchasing the property yeah and i think it's also important to mention that for both mine and carrie's deals um if if you're just joining into our podcast and you don't know both of them are value add deals so we did not like our buy box was a value add uh just because of the um you know the range of ex purchase price we were looking for so um we knew we were going to have value add and i think both of us also, again, wanted that to add equity in into the deal. But either way, if you're going for a value add or a turnkey property, these things are still important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I hope that kind of answers the like licensing slash zoning slash regulation question during due diligence, like know what the rules are. And then if you're going after any particular kind of licensing, get that inspection during the due diligence, due diligence period. And then I think the other thing too to consider would be how many units, if you're talking about your buy box and what your criteria is, how many units do you realistically want to onboard um, all at once? You know, like yep. I, I have 30, you, is yours 30, 40? So we had 42 that will be 35 rentable rooms. That's right. Cause you've made some into common spaces. So mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's you asking yourself, like I wouldn't want to take on a hundred right now. Right. But also I didn't feel like there was like, I, I looked at one property that was nine and I was like, if anything, 
anything like below 10 just doesn't feel like it has the economy of scale that I was looking for where you can, you know, okay, I have one property to maintain and I'm going to put as many units in that one property as possible so that I can leverage the systems a little bit more conveniently because now I have 30 on site at one place. Um, that's, you know, like I have one camera system and I have one, one Wi-Fi bill and I have one electric bill and I have one, you know, um, gas bill and I have one trash removal service. And I, you know, like it was like, I get 30 units for, and then I only have to do those things one time. So I, I feel like less than 10 wasn't quite what I was looking for. And I think I had heard, uh, Mike Shogren say that financing less than 20 is challenging as well. So that was another piece for him with the number of units also. So that was, that was a, a good tip. Yeah. So I was going to, I was going to say, say I, just to add on to that point, I think that there's also value in like looking at different deals because one of the deals that we were looking at when we are actually looking at purchasing the hotel we have was like 13 units for almost the same price as the 40 unit, 42 yes. units. So it's like, where do you want to put your money? Do you want to have more doors or less doors? And like, and also, I mean, that comes down to running numbers in the market because they were in different markets. So which, which route do you want to go? So I think that plays in, plays a part into it too. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point too, because I had analyzed a nine unit for the same price as my 30 unit, but it was lakefront. And I had to ask myself like, is that it was actually in a, a different market that was only 20 minutes away, but it had far less traffic, um, but it was lakefront. And so I had to like weigh the pros and cons of that. And um, typically I would prefer a higher end property, like a property that I can be super proud of. And lakefront seemed very appealing to me. But then when I really ran the numbers, it made more sense to do the one that was not on the lake, but on a higher traffic road. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, maybe I'll circle back to something lakefront later, but, yeah. um, you know, the, I think there's value in just having those conversations, like you said, about comparing two properties, um, so that you, I, I think it's hard, like when you look at one property in a vacuum, like isolated by itself, I mean, you can tell if it's a decent deal, but sometimes it helps to compare it to something else mm-hmm. so that it really makes you feel more confident. Yeah. I mean, we do the same thing when we are working on short-term rentals, right? And we're working on pricing, like we're constantly comparing you're running to know up. that we're doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that you have to do the same thing when you're looking at these large deals too, because if you're, again, even if they are in different markets and, and how is that playing into effect? And again, something, if you can find something similar in the same market and comparing it, it really is a lot of value that can add to your deal and to your negotiation strategy as well. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the last um, piece of advice um, for getting started is like before you, you know, go out and try to find a deal and and start that due diligence process, getting some of your financial documents in order. And um, so I do want to just go through like what what the local bank has asked me for. Um, and it's kind of a segue into another question that we have about personal financial statements. So let me get this pulled up so I can see what do, what are your thoughts on that, Allie? Like, what did you guys have to get prepared? Um, oh, that's a great question. Um, so we actually had to submit numbers on like our short-term rental portfolio. Um, so we had to pull all of that into effect because it was looking at our business as well. But then like personally, um, oh my gosh, 
it's been so long, Carrie. How what what did we have to pull? Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, like they they had to have tax records. They had to have everything on like our mortgage and the properties that we had flipped. Um, like the last ten properties we had to submit profit and loss on. We had a lot. What did, I mean? What all was your list? I'm trying to find it. Um, I should have prepared before we before we started, but I I can find it quickly. Um, so basically, they want a personal financial statement, which is one of the questions that we have. Like, what does it look like? And and we always kind of ask our our guests that on this podcast too. Like, how often do you review your personal financial statement? Um, what does it look like? And so. Um, for me, like I can, I can share a picture of it, although I don't know that'll be helpful on this podcast, but um, basically I, it has our personal assets and then also our business assets and how much, you know, what is our income versus our expenses? So like for us, we have a personal home that we paid 235 for that is valued at 450 now. So we have equity there. We have two cars, however, that, you know, we owe what they're worth, right? So those are are more of a liability, but we have payments on both of those. Um, and then we have a camper that we're selling, so, but that goes on there because it's a loan that we have personally, and that's considered part of your you know, financial statement. Um, and they and in conjunction with the personal financial statement, they want like a debt schedule to be attached. So basically, like what are all the debts that you have and how much do you owe on each of those? So we don't really have credit card debt. Um, we have a business credit card that we use for certain things, but like we don't really carry debt on that. And um, and then and then I as we get down a little bit further, it's it's the business assets. So we had our Florida property that, you know, we I think we've talked a lot about. We paid 385. We now just sold it for 515. Um, but when before we'd sold it, that went on there as like, okay, we have equity in this property as well. Now that we've cashed out of that property, um, that uh, cash that we walked away with got invested. Um, we put some into CDs because we want to remain really liquid um, over the next year for a few reasons. That is an alarm. Sorry. Um, so we we put we put some, our cash from the Florida property into CDs um, because the bank that we're trying to acquire our renovation loan through wants to see liquidity. They would rather see money in a CD that I can access with a phone call versus um, seeing, you know, a Florida property that has 150,000 in equity in it because real estate is not as liquid. And I think they want to know that, you know, if shit hits the fan and Carrie needs, you know, money, how quickly could she access that? And, and, you know, what is the real estate market going to do? Is the value of that property in Florida going to change? We don't know. So having this liquid cash available, um, putting it into CDs, by the way, uh, some of them are like 12 months. Um, some of them are shorter term. But we we asked, we're like, well, what happens if we need the money sooner? You just don't get the interest. So it would almost have been the same as if you'd put it in a bank account with no interest. And I was like, oh, OK, that's fine. So um, are we hedging inflation? Not really. Like, CDs are paying 5% right now. Um, I would prefer to be in something that had much better leverage. I would prefer to be getting much better interest on that money. But for the next year, while we're going through this you know, process to get a commercial um, 
renovation loan. And while we're not sure what the market's even doing, I think it's really smart to have liquidity because, I mean, even if the market changes and there's a few, you know, foreclosures or really good deals that do pop up, I want to be in a position where I have liquid cash available for a down payment to acquire something new. So I felt like that was a good decision for us for right now. So we have that listed on our personal financial statement that like, here's the liquid cash that we have. It's in, you know, these CDs. Um, we have this much in our bank account. We have an emergency fund, which is just our savings account that, you know, we, we keep it a separate bank because Lord knows if it was tied to our regular checking accounts, we might accidentally use it. We love that um, for our emergency fund, we have to like get in the car and do the drive of shame to the other bank where like none of the accounts are connected. We don't even have online banking and we have to wait till they're open. And so like, you really better be sure that this is an emergency if you are going to take money out of your emergency fund. So we've like put systems in place to prevent ourselves from accidentally slipping into that overspending place. Um, and then um, we also have our like retirement accounts listed on that personal financial statement. So, you know, my husband had a, um, a 401k when he worked a W2 job, which we then rolled over to a traditional IRA. Um, we have Roth IRAs. We have a SEP, which is a self-employed pension, like a, a self-employed um, retirement account that we created. So it's not like there's a ton in those because I feel like the best investment is the one that you know, and I know real estate. So we tend to keep most of our investing in the real estate realm, but I think it really helps my husband sleep at night. So we've talked about reluctant spouses, right? Like we, it helps him sleep at night to know that his, you know, 401k, which is now an IRA from his W2 job is still there. Um, and so that's money I'm not allowed to play with. I, I get to play in this sandbox over here. And, um, so that's really what's on our personal financial statement. Um, as we move down into like the real estate asset, now I've added the hotel property to that. Um, so we we know that we purchased it for about 1.9 um, million and it's probably worth more than that now. I estimate that it's like 2.4 at this time, just in its current condition. And then once we do our renovation, it will obviously be worth so much more, But um, but I could probably turn around and sell it today for you know more than i paid so that equity that i've that spread that i've already kind of made just in the time that i've owned it um gets to go on my personal financial statement as net worth so when we're adding up net worth i mean one of my goals is to get is to get to a million net worth right and we're getting close because of the equity that we have in our home plus now the retirement you you count the cds you count the cash in the bank and then you count the equity in in our hotel property so that's that's like the the very like behind the scenes and um, raw exposed answer, Bernie, to your question about about our personal financial statement. And I think it's so important to be reviewing that on a regular basis. And that's why we ask all of our guests that question. And um, I would say I think we've shared this before that we review it more when we're going through the process of like getting a loan. Um, but I think it's if it's one of your goals to to have, you know, a certain net worth, you should be reviewing that as often as possible. Um, so back to the list of what the bank asks for your personal financial statement with the debt schedule. We talked about those tax returns for all your businesses and personal for the last two to three years, P and L's of year, year to date for all your businesses. Um, any verification of the income that you have, like if you have 1099s 
or if you have K1s from a property, or if you have a, like whatever the schedules are from, from your income from those properties. Um, an updated rental property cash flow analysis. I think that's what you were talking about. Like how much do each of these properties generate? Um, if there are any tax returns available for the property that you're purchasing, they will ask for those. Unfortunately, I did not receive any of that from my seller. Um, so that's difficult, but if you can get it, that's really helpful. Um, construction and remodeling estimates. If you are planning a renovation, having a bid from a contractor to include for the lender is really important. And then a business plan with three years projection. They want to know your background, um, the assumptions to your numbers, like how, where did you come up with the numbers? Um, what kind of marketing are you thinking? What is the competition in the area? Um, request for, um, it, if I'm trying to think exactly what they're trying to explain here, basically any other pertinent information to, to your business plan, like what you're trying to achieve when you buy the property. And then they'll just want some basic things like your driver's license, um, the signed purchase contract when you have it, um, any leases that are in place on the property right then. Um, if you are buying in an LLC, they'll want your articles of organization and your operating agreement. That's the laundry list. It's a big one. Um, that's what I've been working on preparing <laughs> lately. So, no. so I'm in the thick of that right now. Yeah, it is a lot. And, and let me just make this uh, a little piece of advice for you guys. And when you do this once, you stick all the information that's reusable into a folder and then you bring it back up and update it. So, um, so that was something that we learned like after all the deals we've gone through is like, we just have a folder with everything and then it just constantly gets updated so that all of, it's easier, right? To pull that stuff. But I also want to um, just speak to the fact that when a, a bank does ask for this stuff, it's not just like a submit it and done deal. They're going to call you and have conversations with you around this. They may ask you to come into the branch and sit down with, you know, someone from their branch and talk, talk through everything. So, um, so just kind of keep that in mind too, that kind of prepare yourself for those conversations and you need to be aware of the numbers that you're submitting so that you can have conversations around those. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to speak intelligently about all these things is super important. And, um, that was a huge compliment that I received from, uh, lender that I'm talking to was like when they have questions about like how many units, how many of them have kitchens, like where are they located on the property? What's the system with this? Tell me about this utility bill. Like I could answer every single question intelligently. And they said to me, like, we love that you haven't said, I don't know. And it's not that I would never say it. I would always say, let me find out. But I never even needed to because I'm so involved in the project that I know the answers to all these things that they're asking me. And um, I think they they said, I'm like, well, you know, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because I believe in like who, not how, right? So should I be outsourcing some of these things? I don't think at this stage I should be. Um, but they said like, oh, a lot of times we have like, oh, there's two business partners and the other person knows all that stuff. Well, then that person should really be in the room too, you know, when the conversations are happening. So that was interesting feedback. It didn't apply to me, but I think just if if you're going before somebody and you don't know some of the nitty gritty details about the deal, like make, make sure you have the person who does know those things um, on speed dial. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause if it's a partnership, then both partners should be, I mean, 
just a little bit of advice on partnerships, like for you guys, if, if you're in a partnership deal, then you guys should be doing it continuously together. Even though you may be um, delegating certain tasks to one another, you on big moments like this, you guys should be together and on, on the same page, right? Yeah. So Love it. Right. That was a lot. We got a few that other questions, but I think I want to save them for next time because um, I think, I think that we're getting to the end of like our time and yep. I think it would be, I think we'll just keep a little bank of questions here. And if anybody has any more post them in our group or send them to us in a DM and we'll just keep a little bank of questions and we can answer a few more next week. Yep. That sounds great. All right. Uh, so uh, next week, guys, we won't be doing any lives next week for the holiday week. So uh, by the time this airs, it will be weeks after, uh, 4th of July holiday week, but just if you are listening live or you come back to the Facebook group, no lives next week. We will see you guys after the holiday week. Yeah, but we will be posting something new to Spotify and Apple podcast and YouTube next week. So yes, absolutely. All right. Well, bye guys. Thanks again for tuning in to She Invest. Have a wonderful day.